our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that in the midst of this place, the busyness all around us, some of us even the anxiety within us, that you would speak your word into our hearts and transform us by it, by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask it for your glory. Amen. I have a friend, well, not really a friend, more an acquaintance, who sends me unsolicited emails from time to time. He's a, a Christian hater. I made contact with him, or he made contact with me during uh, the mission that we held two years ago. Uh, he's been e- emailing me on and off since. I-, I think it's true to say that he is the most closed-minded, self-righteous, utterly turned in on himself, foolish person I've ever met or spoken with. Uh, which is saying something, actually. He declares himself to be purely scientific in his mindset, and yet over uh, the nearly two years of correspondence with him, he, he's yet to make a single argument in his emails to me. His latest letter, along with the accompanying pornographic pictures, uh, which he sends, I guess, to kind of upset me, though. Uh, I've, I've never clarified why it is that he sends me those alongside his uh, otherwise straightforward letters. He says this, I'm assuming you are still in the land of mythical dreams and wishful thinking. You know, a, a, a very balanced kind of statement. He goes on to quote someone saying, Rationality and religion are exact opposites. Religion is based on blind faith. It is not evidence-based. It rests on basic beliefs, dogma, that are not derived nor supported by observation or by performance, but by need. It is wishful thinking used to simplify everything. It requires no real thinking. It survives on the need for an uncomplicated and easily explained world and prides itself on its rejection of rationality. Its mascot or saint is Pollyanna. Religion eschews, that's a big word, means uh, rejects, investigation and logic as disturbing and unwanted elements of life. That's typical of his letters, typical of the quotes he sends me, and like I say, no argument, no case, in fact the irony of it is that it's just dogma, simplifications and an easily explained world. Now as I get these unasked for and frankly unwanted emails, I'm beginning to wonder what I should do for him. Two years we've been going. Is it worth replying or is it that or would that be just casting pearls before swine, as Jesus puts it? Would it be best not to reply and let his prejudice kind of just waste itself away? Or should I keep trying to find a way forward and attempt to highlight the hypocrisy of it all in the hope that somehow he might find his way to a better place? In a sense, my internet friend Neil is not that far from Israel in the 8th century BC. You remember last week we began our first short series in the prophecy of Isaiah. We looked at the prologue, the first five chapters, and we saw there a bleak picture. Judah corrupted in national life and in her religious devotion as well. She no longer walks in the light of the Lord. In fact, she's hideously conformed to the darkness of the pagan world around her, trusting in mortals, in human ingenuity and technology, so they have only breath in their nostrils, a profoundly tenuous grip on life. Judah's response to the God who could have done nothing more, to the God who withheld no blessing or care from her, was to produce only bad, wild, bitter fruit. They have become a thing, they perform a religion 
which is hated, hated by the Lord, a disgust to him. And so the prologue, chapter 5, ends at the close of the chapter with only darkness and distress and the light grows dark with clouds. Now in this context I guess we expect God to just kind of vacate the premises, to simply stand back to clear out and execute his fierce judgment. What's more, that's how chapter 6 opens, it would seem, with the king, Uzziah, dead. The last years of his reign were pathetic, in hubris, he had sought to usurp the role of the priests of Israel and entered into the temple to offer sacrifice on the altar of incense. The high priest followed him in and stopped him. And we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 and verse 19, I quote, Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to make offering, and when he became angry and the priests, uh, with the priests, a leprous disease, not leprosy and scientific or medical form in which we know it, a skin disease rather of a general sort, broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. When the chief priest, Azariah, and all the priests looked at him, he was leprous in his forehead. They hurried him out, and he himself hurried to get out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was leprous to the day of his death, and being leprous, according to the law of God, as you know, lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. This is how Uzziah ends his days. Leprous, alone, polluted, unholy, excluded from the house of the Lord. And the question really chapter 6 opens with is, is that Israel's fate too? Is that Israel's fate too? Like her king. But suddenly, in fact, another king, the true king, takes centre stage. Listen to it, chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty. And the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. As I see the Lord seated in his royal glory, uh, actually he, he doesn't really see the Lord. Uh, you notice that the Lord himself is never actually described or depicted. Rather, all the things around him are described and given that the Lord himself is far above those things, the picture is drawn. Listen to the elements. The Lord, of course, firstly is high and lifted up. I used to be into rock climbing uh, when I was a lad. Uh, your age and uh, it's a sensational sport I don't know if, you've, uh, if anyone's ever done it not, not the thing on walls down by gyms right? but the real thing out in the mountains where real men go rock climbing um, it, it, it is a massive adrenaline surge uh, you, you do the easy thing which is abseil down or you, or you climb up from the creek down the bottom 
you climb your way up the, up the face, you get to the top of the mountain, it's got a massive drop below you, and the valley below even that, it is just fantastic. As it turns out, I had a, a form of a fear of heights, uh, which meant that I had a nearly overwhelming urge to hurl myself off the cliff and fly. Um, not, not a good fear to have when you're a rock climber. And I remember this uh, one particular occasion, getting to the top of a cliff, I was high and lifted up. And, and the sense of power and authority and command that you have from that height is you sort of gaze out over the valley and see it all beneath you and below you. It's just stunning. Well, the Lord is not just afflicted with a kind of temporary insanity, as I was. He has that authority of high and lifted up by right in his own person. Secondly, the hem of his robe fills the temple. I'm no seamstress, uh, but I understand the hem to be that bit uh, down the bottom. That doesn't really matter much. I have a hem on these pants. I'll show them to you now. Uh, it's getting a little frayed at the moment, actually, since uh, my weight loss program is having some small effect and the pants are riding down, I'm pleased to say. But I don't care about the hem, right? I don't care about the hem. The point is that the hem is the least significant, the smallest bit of my pants. The least significant, smallest bit of the robe of the Lord. And it fills entirely the most important and largest structure of the city of God, the temple occupying a third of Jerusalem. Powerful, high and lifted up. Grand, his robes hem fills the temple. Third, suddenly there's movement. There are seraphs in attendance above him. These are not your regular angels. In fact, uh, they're not really angels at all. Uh, seraphs is uh, literally burning ones. There are burning ones, flaming ones in attendance. Perhaps like those pictures that you've seen uh, of steelworks. Uh, you know, whenever they do a story on either Wollongong or Newcastle, frankly, you've always got to see a picture of the steelworks. And there's this molten liquid metal just kind of burning and moving at incredibly high temperatures. Well, now, seraphs, that formed, perhaps, into a figure that lives for the Lord. Six wings, two, they cover their faces. Uh, presumably from the time of their creation, they've never seen God in appropriate deference to this one. With two, they cover their feet, perhaps indicating that they move only at the Lord's command and with two, they fly. But they do speak, Isaiah now hears. What is the thing that they speak of? Having spent countless eons in the service of God, what is it that they speak of? Is it of his love? The sheer glorious grace of God, is that the thing? No. Is it the power of God? The magnificent energy? that God himself is? No. Is it the eternity of God? The one who has life from himself and from no one else is life himself? Again, no. No, it's of the holiness of God that they speak. Holiness is the essence of God. And the seraphs sing of that holiness in threefold form. Holy, holy, holy. It's a Hebrew idiom. Uh, holiness to the power of holiness, if you like. And, and that again to the power of holiness. And by the time uh, that you've 
got three powers of holiness, it's just holiness in itself, pure, undiluted holiness. That's the essence of the true and living God. Moses too spoke of this holiness uh, after God has brought them out from the land of Egypt. Exodus chapter 15 verse 11 Who is like you, O God, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness. Awesome in splendour. Doing wonders. Now think for a moment with me about this holiness of the Lord. The key idea here is one of separateness. By nature, by, by constitution, things belong, are separated into different categories. Some belong over here, and then others belong over here. And the Lord is holy, 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 utterly separate, utterly alone in his own category. One author put it that the holiness of God is his infinite qualitative difference. His infinite qualitative difference. Not quantitative, not just kind of a, a bit more qualitative and and not just in degree it's in kind not just a little bit but infinite the Lord is holy infinitely qualitatively different two things is holiness it means of course that God is not just a slightly bigger or even a greatly bigger version of us this is a fundamental mistake to make about God uh, to think that, that when we know something of love in our own experience, well, that means that God loves us like that. Perhaps the best of human love, except just a lot more. Well, when we see uh, people around us, perhaps, or ourselves, as, as wrathful, so we understand God's wrath to be something like that, although bigger and more pure. No. No. Recently at a Bible study I was in, uh, we were speaking about the purpose of God in salvation to glorify himself and a guy who was a, a visitor of the Bible study started mouthing off about God as insecure uh, as an arrogant tyrant what sort of inferiority complex drives someone to want people to praise him when did it have a, a more pure a greater conception of God than one who would seek his own glory well uh, Stuart's a nice guy uh, actually it turns out he's even well educated in biblical exegesis it's just that he has no idea of the true and living God it's not the faintest conception or understanding of who the real God is for you see God is holy that means that he defines what security and arrogance and glory and majesty are the holiness of God means that we don't get to create our concepts and apply them to him and perhaps judge him by them no he judges our concepts we redefine our concepts around this reality the reality of who God is as he's revealed himself to be that's part of what the holiness of God means but note a second that this holiness is not a holiness which is removed in its transcendence the song goes on Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is not a holiness at a distance. 
as though somehow he can't get himself dirty by having contact with the earth. That is precisely one of those concepts that needs redefinition in the light of the reality of God. It's a Greek concept from Greek philosophy. It's rubbish. No, this holiness is a vitally present, active, engaged holiness. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now as we read of this biography of Isaiah's encounter with the true and living God, let me ask you if you know anything of this holiness in in your own experience. Have you ever actually encountered this holy God? As I listen to our prayers, to my prayers, as I hear our conversations, as I notice uh, the almost complete absence of the fear of God as functioning powerfully among us, my fear is that we have terribly lost sight of the holiness of God. Listen to this quote from the great Scottish theologian P.T. Forsyth, uh, writing at the beginning of the 20th century, but it rings all too true for our day as well. It's a long quote, you'll have to concentrate hard, but it's very, very worth it. Listen. He says, To bring sin home, what he means is for people to really be convicted of their sin. To bring sin home and to bring grace home, we need that something else should come home which alone gives meaning to both. The holy. The grace of God cannot return to our preaching or to our faith till we recover what has almost clean gone from our general, familiar and current religion, what liberalism has quite lost. I mean a due sense of the holiness of God. This sense has much gone from our public worship with its frequent irreverence. From our sentimental piety to which an ethical piety, that is one based on the holiness of God is what he means, with its implications is simply obscure. This sense has much gone from our rational religion which banishes the idea of God's wrath, from our public morals to which the invasion of property is more dreadful than the damnation of men. He says, If our gospel be obscure, it is obscure to them in whom the slack God of the period has blinded their minds, for a genial God unbraced them and hidden the Holy One who inhabits eternity. The holiness of God is the real foundation of religion. It is certainly the ruling interest of the Christian religion. In front of all our prayer or work stands hallowed, holied, hallowed be thy name. If we take the Lord's Prayer alone, God's holiness is the interest which all the rest of it serves. Neither love, grace, faith nor sin have any but a passing meaning except as they rest on the holiness of God except as they arise from it and return to it, except as they satisfy, satisfy, show it forth, set it up and secure it everywhere and forever. Love is but its outgoing. Sin is but its defiance. Grace is but its action on sin. The cross is but its victory. Faith is but its worship. He concludes with reference actually to our own chapter. The preacher preaches to the divinest purpose that is really fulfills her or his job. Only when his lips are touched with the red coal from the altar of the thrice holy in the innermost place. 
we must rise beyond social righteousness and universal justice to the holiness of an infinite God. Isaiah saw the Lord and it's an experience of overwhelming holiness. The foundations of the temple shook. Isaiah's personal foundations shook. Israel's foundations shook in the presence of this God. Now I want you to enter into this. Imagine just for a moment what you might do if you were actually in Isaiah's shoes in the presence of God. I wonder for myself if I would be in a kind of dumb silence. Perhaps it might be an awe at this majestic God. You might stretch it and even say, well, we, the, the first response would be love. Love for him. Actually, once in my Christian life, I've had something uh, remotely approaching this sort of experience. I remember it with crystal clarity, sitting in my home, uh, on the couch, looking in a particular direction. Uh, I was praying uh, in the evening, and suddenly overwhelmed with a sense of the holiness of God. And I just started crying, actually, uh, confessing. In fact, not unlike Isaiah. Listen to him, verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. So I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, there's the King, the true, living, powerful King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah knows that he's undone. Woe is he. And, and we hear the echoes of the woes, the ahs, that have been pronounced throughout the prologue. Isaiah has a true vision of himself. He has a true vision of his people. Perhaps even he speaks that true vision on behalf of his people precisely because he has a true vision of God. You can only know yourself when you know the living and true holy God. Woe is me, for I am unclean. Of unclean lips I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Jesus said that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And I, and I take it that, that in referencing his lips, Jesus, uh, sorry, Isaiah speaks of his heart. Notice there's no statement of hope here, there's not a plea for forgiveness. It's simply an expulsion of recognition. I and my people are undone. And again, you might ask, what, what do you think could happen next? Isaiah could simply leave in despair, walk off, perhaps even take his own life at the bottomless black that is in his own heart. Well, see the way that the Holy Lord responds to his sinful prophet. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphs flew to me holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Having seen the holiness of God, Isaiah now tastes it. One of the seraphs flies at him. And you can imagine what Isaiah thinks if he comes close. I don't know if you've ever played that uh, trust game where you lie on the ground 
and someone sort of stands over you and falls towards you with their hands together, right? And at the last moment, instead of sort of dunking you in the eye, they sort of separate their hands and land on the ground in front of you and, uh, you know, you go, oh, gee, thanks. <laughs> it's quite scary, right? Will you imagine now as this seraph, this flaming, molten flame, comes towards Isaiah. I mean, he thinks it's all over, Red Rover, isn't it? This is it. What's more, this seraph has taken a coal, taken it with a pair of tongs. Why do you handle a coal with a pair of tongs? Because it's too hot at that point, even for the seraph to handle. And he comes to Isaiah and touches his lips with the coal. And I guess there was a sound much like when a steak hits a hot barbecue. You get what's going on here? Uh, the coal is from the altar, the place of sacrifice and cleansing. And the seraph draws close to Isaiah not to destroy, but to cleanse, to purify, with the holiness of God to burn away the sin and the guilt of Isaiah in the white heat of God's holiness. Notice two things about this work, this magnificent, purifying work of grace. Firstly, it is complete and thorough. When you are touched by the purifying holiness of God, the job is done in its entirety. Your guilt has departed, says the seraph, now that this has touched your lips and your sin is blotted out. They are gone, removed, utterly obliterated in the holiness of God. Hear this, won't you? I think so many of us live as though our guilt still hangs around a little rather than having been departed. That our sin is still smudged over us to some extent rather than having been cleansed. Uh, that dreadful phrase is a disgracefully unchristian thought that we find it hard to forgive ourselves as though we had any right to forgive ourselves in the first place. I think picks up on something of this that we don't see the purifying, holy cleansing of God from his altar. We keep remembering the things that we've done. We play them over and over in our minds, especially sexual sin, which is so close to the core of our being. But hear this, won't you? When you are touched by the holiness of God in its ultimate form, the cross of Christ, both your sin and its stench, your guilt, utterly obliterated, utterly obliterated, burned entirely in the magnificent, holy, holy, holy Lord. In fact, it's only the evil one, the accuser, who tells you otherwise. And your task in the face of that accusation is simply to invoke the reality of the thrice holy Lord. Second, notice that this grace is twofold. Not only is Isaiah cleansed, on the one hand but he is also commissioned on the other hand listen to verse 8 then I heard the voice of the Lord saying 
whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. You see the twofold nature of this grace, both cleansed and commissioned or called. It's always, always the two of them together. You don't get one without the other. Foresight, again, listen. To deliver us from evil is not simply to take us out of hell, it is to take us into heaven. By which he doesn't mean some sort of floaty time up there, but the life of the age to come now. Christ does not simply pluck us out of the hands of Satan, he does so by giving us to God. He does not simply release us out of slavery, he commits us in the act to a positive liberty. He invokes an image. He does not simply cancel the charge against us in court and bid us walk out of jail. He meets us at the prison door and puts us in a new way of life. His forgiveness is not simply retrospective. It is in the same act the gift of eternal life, life which begins now. Our evil is overcome by good. We are won from sin by an act which at the same time makes us not simply innocent, kind of zero, neutral, but holy. You hear Forsyth's point? These two things, the, the cleansing and the commissioning, the cleansing and the call, always, always go together. And so Isaiah lives in that reality and writes God a blank check over all of his life. Here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. I'm yours. You've made me yours. You've taken me through the fire, the fire of the holy altar of God. You've cleansed me. And I'm yours, says Isaiah, for whatever purpose, for whatever sacrifice you might ask. And you've got to ask yourself the question. You know the cleansing of God? Good. Have you yielded to the commissioning of God as well? Have you written a blank check over the entirety of your life? No post-dating on it. You know, when I've done this and achieved that. No limit on it. I'll go this far and no further. Simply the blank check of your life. Have you written that? There is no other way for those who are cleansed by God. And I say, for some, this will mean a life's investment in small p prophetic ministry in the footsteps of Isaiah, that you make your life's work the preaching and teaching of the Bible and the leadership of God's people. I hope that that will be many here. It ought to be. The church, the world needs people by their thousands to give themselves in this way. And of all people privileged, we ought to be amongst those. At least... I hope that the reason you don't do it, if you don't, is not a lack of willingness, but a lack of call or guidance by God. But for most, it's not so much a particular job, but a particular set of values and priorities and investments. That your decisions and habits and life pattern 
the way you spend your time and your energy and your money are absurd according to the values of this world. Demonstrably, visibly, transparently stupid. Cross-like even in their foolishness, you might say. Determined by the kingdom of God, which you seek first. Trusting God with the rest. Can I say to you this afternoon, do not end this day. Do not go to sleep tonight without doing serious business with God on this one. If you know in your heart that you've not written that blank check, that if you've got strings attached and provisos and quid pro quos and whatever it might be, limits, that you will not say to God, here am I, send me, then you need to do serious business with God about that tonight. God cashes the check, mind you. Verse 9, he said, Oh, and say to this people, keep listening but do not comprehend. Keep looking but do not understand. Make the mind of this people dull and stop their ears and shut their eyes so that they may not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and comprehend with their minds and turn and be healed. God cashes the check and tells Isaiah what to say to the people and what effect he's to have on them. Having seen and heard the Lord himself and experienced the cleansing and commissioning of his holiness, Isaiah is to taunt the people of Judah, to to goad them that they too are to hear and look But instead of responding rightly, they are to not comprehend and to not understand. Incredibly, the effect of Isaiah's ministry is to make the mind of this people dull, to stop their ears, to shut their eyes, to ensure that they do not look and do not listen and do not comprehend and therefore do not turn and are not healed. In other words, Isaiah's ministry is a ministry in fulfilment of the judgment of God, a ministry of failure and condemnation. I wonder whether Isaiah was kind of tempted to sort of try and snatch back that check, actually. Surely not that, Lord. When I said, here am I, send me, I really meant send me to something good, something fulfilling, something positive. Perhaps understandably he asks now an unprompted question. Perhaps a little boldly. Verse 11. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is utterly desolate until the Lord sends everyone far away and vast is the emptiness in the middle of the land. Even if a tenth part remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains standing when it is felled. The question receives the bleakest of answers until the destruction of judgment is complete. As complete as the cleansing that Isaiah has received. Cities lying waste, houses without people, the land utterly desolate so that vast is its emptiness. Desolate like a burnt out forlorn stump of a tree. And yet... Even that, in the heart of judgment, 
even that perhaps is not quite the end the chapter closes with just the barest hope the holy seed is its son uh, this is a poetic mysterious difficult phrase in the midst of this burnt out tree stump that is Judah after the judgment of God somehow there yet is a seed and we in Australia with our bushfires know something of this don't we there's life and hope in the form of a holy seed from which the tree might grow again it is the barest of hints but we'll see next week that Isaiah develops from it a rich understanding of the future of God's people pared down to one point in a faithful and future king make sure you come back and see what he sees but for the moment let's conclude Isaiah wrote God a blank check and God cashed it and Isaiah fulfilled his commission Uh, he saw the judgment of God fall on Judah and even spoke of a time after that judgment with God saying words of comfort to his people that she had served her term that her penalty was paid from the Lord's hand double for all her sins and that there was a future for Israel in the land but it never eventuated at least not in those terms Israel was never cleansed like her prophet her exile may have been over geographically but certainly not spiritually and so another prophet this time a son prophet S-O-N was sent to Israel who took again to his lips this commission of Isaiah Jesus the son explains to his disciples that he speaks in parables the, the primary form of his own prophetic ministry not in order to use kind of homey illustrations that simple country folk could understand but precisely in order to do in the first century what Isaiah had done seven centuries earlier to dull minds and to stop ears and to shut eyes so that they may not turn and be forgiven check it out in Mark chapter 4 and that's the way it sometimes is in speaking the word of God for us as it was for Isaiah as it was for our Lord Jesus the darkness hates the light says Jesus in another context and so when the light shines in the darkness people who love the darkness hate the light that too is a function of the light and so I guess I will keep writing to Neil you should keep speaking to people who seem to show no interest but only disdain to the things of Christ a friend of mine called this morning he's a public servant and he was speaking uh, to a senior minister uh, in government who's uh, reading only of course in an academic way the Bible at the moment and my friend is looking even in his kind of this academic way to feed this colleague of his it may of course just push him further and further away if you read the such untastely uh, distasteful things the holiness and therefore the wrath of God but as those who stand with Jesus we are to keep speaking to keep showing forth the word of God 
Can I say, if you're not a Christian person here this afternoon, perhaps you've seen something in Christians, you've, you've hung around Christian groups for a while, or maybe you've never even really taken your Christianity seriously. You call yourself a Christian, but you've never written that blank check to God. It's more of a social thing, a bit of a hobby, something of a sideline in your life that adds a dimension, but, not, but, but is not really dominant. If that's you, then the time has come to change. The time has come to do real business with the real God. To recognise that if you continue to harden your heart to God, to hold out on Him, then a time will come when your mind is so dulled, when your ears are so stopped, when your eyes have become so covered that you are so hardened that you will lose all capacity to see and hear and understand. And so can I say with the authority of Christ this afternoon, turn to him, this holy Jesus, himself the burning coal from the fire of God. Jesus who by his cross cleanses you from all your sins. Turn to him. Give yourself to him. Don't hold back a thing. You have nothing to lose except your sin and your guilt and everything to gain. Let's pray together. Holy, holy, holy Lord, we pray that out of the fire of your own holiness, pure, unquenchable, you would do your work in our lives, cleansing and commissioning. And we pray for the glory of Jesus. Amen.